Are you looking for a chance to connect with other development professionals and learn the latest in fundraising best practices? If so, join us at the beautiful Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida for the 2022 Petrus Development Conference on June 13th through 15th. Connect with others from fundraising offices, both big and small, from dioceses, campus ministries, schools, parishes, apostolates, and more. Register today at PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. Refer a friend to PDC22, and if they register before the end of January, you could win a free upgrade to your hotel room during the conference. Space is limited, so visit PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22 to reserve your spot today. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. How would you like to go to a guy and say, look, uh, we got this project. It's completely secret. Nobody will ever know you were involved in any way. It may fail. And by the way, I have to tell you, it failed twice before in 1524 and 1540. But we'd like you to put an unlimited amount of money into the project if you would. Now, that was actually a great story. It's super intriguing. Where does it come from? Okay, so that was a clip of John O'Neill, who's the author of The Fisherman's Tomb, which was one of the source materials we used for this whole story. But what he was referring to is that meeting in 1940 between Father Walter Carroll and George Strake in Texas. Basically, in 1939, a worker in the Vatican falls through the floor under St. Peter's Basilica, falls 30 feet and lands in a secret underground tomb that they don't know how big it is. They don't know what's in there. But they're fairly confident, based on tradition, that that's where the bones of St. Peter lie. And Pope Pius XII is intent on figuring out if that's where it is. He needs money for it, so he sends Father Walter Carroll to meet with George Drake. Time out. So you're saying, almost 2,000 years after St. Peter's death, one of the most important apostles, we have no idea where his bones are. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of crazy. So uh, let me give you like a Reader's Digest version of the history of St. Peter and St. Peter's bones. So in AD 64, Peter, this is the same St. Peter who Jesus said, leave your fishing job and come follow me. He tells him to step out and walks on water in the storm. St. Peter that denies Jesus three times the night of his persecution and the same St. Peter that Jesus gives the keys and says, upon this rock will I build my church, right? So he's doing ministry. He comes back to Rome in AD 64, right when Nero is taking advantage of a fire that really ravaged the city to persecute the Christians. He sees the Christians as this kind of crazy cult that's dangerous to the empire, and so he starts killing Christians. And Peter and Paul are two of the most prominent Christians that he executes, Peter is crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. And he's crucified right outside the circus of Nero. And when he dies, some of his body's discarded, but some early Christians find it and they recover it and they go and they bury it on Vatican Hill, which at the time was kind of outside the city as outside the Roman walls. And so there wasn't really anything on Vatican Hill. So that happens in AD 64, right? 
for about 250 years, Christians are persecuted, they're killed, they're fed to lions in the Colosseum, they're exiled. It's not a, it's not a great time to be a Christian. And so one of the things that those Christians do is it's a secret about St. Peter's Bones because they feel like if the Romans figure out where they're buried, then they're going to dig them up, they're going to desecrate them, and they're going to do kind of persecute the Christians for even following them, but they're going to destroy the bones. Which is kind of crazy because, again, we've got, we're talking Peter, one yeah. of the most important figures in the early church. His bones, in my mind, seem to be maybe one of the first ones that they try to find and desecrate. Correct. Yeah. So it's a big secret, and there's actually, we'll talk about it later, but there's actually some rumors that the, some of the Christians actually come and they move the bones because the Romans might have found out where they are, so they move them. So anyways, around the year 300, Diocletian comes in and starts the great persecution and really kind of ramps up the persecution of the Christians, burns churches, destroys documents. Really, anybody who's got any association or affiliation with the Christians is killed, is exiled, is tortured, and that's when it really is important that nobody knows where Peter's bones are buried. Right after that is Constantine. And Constantine has this conversion in part thanks to his mother, Helen, and he really becomes a protector of the Christians. And even so much as he starts building churches, he becomes a sponsor of the Christian faith. And one of the first churches he builds is... St. Peter's? St. Peter's Basilica, (laughs) right there on Vatican Hill. Exactly. So Constantine or Helen, we don't exactly know. Somehow they find out that that's where the bones of St. Peter are allegedly. And so they build the first, very first St. Peter's Basilica right there, perfectly situated over where tradition holds the bones of St. Peter are buried. That's where the first St. Peter's, they call it Old St. Peter's Basilica. In the 1500s, they actually tear down St. Peter's Basilica because it's in disrepair. Pope Julius actually starts the new St. Peter. It's kind of added on to, they bring in Michelangelo, paints the Sistine Chapel. So for about 120 years, they're building St. Peter's. And that's when they build the dome, which was the tallest dome in the world at the time. But it's all done with this sort of idea that it's built over the bones of St. Peter. Now, that all being said, nobody wants to actually dig underneath and figure out if that's where St. Peter is buried. Why would that be? Okay, so it's a good question, and it's hard to know exactly, but this is what most of the experts have said. There were other attempts. In the 15th century, some of the popes dug, and they they didn't find the bones. So some of the popes and some of the Christians and some of the leaders felt like, if we keep trying this and we keep coming up dry, eventually this is going to have kind of the reverse effect of what we want, right? It kind of go back to Strake when he's drilling wells, if they keep hitting dry wells, he loses his sponsorship, right? And he loses support. Like nobody's going to invest money in him to drill wells if everything he hits is dry. And so the fact that it happens a couple of times in the 15th century, they say, maybe we need to stop digging for St. Peter's bones and just sort of keep with tradition that they're there, build the church, tell the faithful, this is where Peter is buried and everybody is none the wiser if we're right or we're wrong. But you're saying, even though they dug and came up dry wells, so to speak, or or dry tombs, they couldn't find Peter when they dug in the 1500s. What you were saying earlier is a gentleman in 39 fell through the floor into something. Yeah. So in 1939, Pope Pius XI dies, and his wish is to be buried 
underneath the altar of St. Peter. And so they're starting to go in and they're preparing for a tomb. And while they're digging, a worker falls through the floor, falls 30 feet and lands in this giant cavernous underground crypt. They call it the necropolis. That sounds like a scene straight out of Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does, doesn't right. it? Yeah, he falls down and then a giant boulder is unleashed and starts coming down. And then he dies out of the way and then arrows shoot out from either side. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so he falls under and now Pope Pius Twelfth, who's the living pope at the time, he has to figure out what do we do with this information? Do we keep digging or do we cover it up and do what popes before had previously done? So Pope Pius Twelfth is a lover of history, kind of like myself, right? And he isn't really okay with not knowing, but there's like a massive clause to this. He doesn't actually want anybody else to know that they're digging and they may have found this. Why wouldn't he want anybody else to know? So a couple of reasons. Number one is, again, it's this idea of you don't want to keep tempting fate and teasing the faithful. And so he wants it to be done in secret. The other reason, though, just much more practical, is this is 1939, and there's a guy named Adolf Hitler and the Nazis who are starting what will ultimately become World War II. So there's already like this heightened sense of fear. You look back at the age of Diocletian, this great persecution. It's no secret that Hitler has no love for for people that don't agree with that the Third Reich is basically God, right? And then you've also got Mussolini, who's coming to power with the fascists, which is all about state control and, you know, the state is going to take care of you. They're not friendly to the Christians. So I think there's a part of Pope Pius that wants to keep it a secret so that those people don't find out and kind of reignite this persecution and they come in and they destroy it. So if he if he goes forward with this plan to research and try to figure out if, if mm-hmm. Peter is buried in this area that they just by happenstance fell into, that's going to take some effort which means it's going to take some money and it's going to take people yeah. to get it done. So upon early searches, they realize that what they're actually finding are pagan tombs. They're Roman leaders, Roman lords who had died and had been buried there. The space is huge. It's over a million cubic meters. You said one million cubic meters? Yeah. Fun fact, I like to tie things back to previous seasons. Season two, we talked about John Raskob, who built the Empire State Building, which by itself is a pretty common unit of measurement if you Mm -hmm. look at big things. The Empire State Building is just over one million cubic meters in volume. Holy smokes. That's the scale of this excavation. Wow. Ultimately, they find, you know, at the end of the day, they find somewhere around 40 different pagan tombs, walls, multi-levels. And so in order to do this, and especially to do it in secret, they're going to need money. And they need money from the right source. So that's where Pope Pius XII sends Father Carroll to Texas to meet with George Strake, who is a wildcatter. He's willing to take risk. He's a digger, right, which is what they need, somebody who understands that. And what they think they know and what they ask ultimately is, will he give all this money in secret? So I think we have another clip from John O'Neill that kind of talks a little bit more about that ask. The proposal was, look, this is Father Carroll, from an emissary of Pope Pius XII. And he has a project, the most secret and most important project of the Catholic Church, and he would like you to finance it. He doesn't know how much it'll cost, and it may fail. Well, (laughs) you have George Strike, the perfect donor for that project, because, of course, he wanted everything to be kept secret, 
And second, he was a wildcatter. This is a guy used to taking tremendous risks and particularly drilling underground. And so I guess that's why they picked him. He had already been deeply active in giving money to the church at Rome in securing the North American College in 1937 and other projects. But that was sort of the capstone of what he did. So, wow. That's all I can say is wow. <laughs> I mean, if, if there was any any human in history that I'm aware of that would be the perfect fit for a donor for this project, hmm. it's George Strake. I mean, uh, he, he fits it perfectly. Yeah, it's exactly right. These are the couple of components of this ask. It needs to be anonymous. The Pope doesn't want anybody to know that they're digging. It needs to be unlimited because they don't know how much this is going to cost. And it needs to be done with the understanding that it could fail wildly, which it has done twice before. So it's a pretty bold request. And I would say that that probably puts Father Walter Carroll in like the Mount Rushmore of development officers (laughs) for the Catholic Church. The fact that he got George Strake to agree to this gift. But he does. So George Strake says yes. So the digging continues from 1940 until 1945, they start digging under the basilica and uncovering all of these tombs and all of these treasures. So the people that are put in charge of this, there's a Monsignor Ludwig Koss, who is kind of a diplomat within the diocese. He's a savvy politician. He's capable of working behind the scenes, finding pragmatic solutions to serious problems kind of a guy. And he's put in charge to head the secret excavations by Pope Pius XII. There's another guy, though, Father Antonio Ferrua, who has a little bit of background in archaeology, but I don't think that I would say that he's like a, a master archaeologist. Yeah, didn't he just graduate? Yeah, so he had some experience, right? But he's certainly not, let's just say this, the way that John O'Neill describes this is that they do a very hard job very poorly. Right, So they're not really implementing proper archaeological practices. I mean, they're not cataloging anything. They're not taking pictures. You know, when they come to walls with frescoes and things that are pagan, in many cases, they're just kind of blasting right through them and destroying them because all they're really looking for, they're looking for one thing. They're looking for St. Peter's bones. And they know exactly where they're supposed to be based on where St. Peter's Basilica is made. And so... They're not really caring about anything else. And so there's even situations where there's bones in a wall or there's a a tomb and the workers just leave the bones there. They move on and they keep working. Now, I will say the conditions are very hard. This is in Rome, underground, and they're not allowed to use any power tools. They're using shovels, pickaxes. They aren't allowed to bring in any real excavation experts because they want to keep this secret so they really just use vatican staff so they're kind of like training custodians and and maintenance people to be able to do this really tough work and like i said Ferua doesn't really have a background in this now i will also say the archaeology you mentioned indiana jones that's kind of like the style of archaeology at this point they're not doing carbon dating they don't really have fancy tools it's really about in some cases, kind of glorified treasure hunters. And to some extent, that's kind of how Faru is approaching this, is he's trying to find the treasure, and if there's damage done in the process, so be it. We're going to find what we want. So as they're digging their way toward where St. Peter's tomb is supposed to be, mm-hmm. did they find anything of interest that they did note or save or catalog? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the things that they found is 
they found a mausoleum belonging to the pagan Valerius dating to the second century AD. And on the wall of this, they found crudely drawn image of Christ marked with the ancient symbol of the Phoenix and next to it, a balding bearded male figure in rough Latin script were the words, Peter pray Christ Jesus for the Holy. So this was the first mention of the apostle that they found in the area excavated underneath the Basilica. And that is from a book called The Bones of St. Peter, which was written by Margarita Garducci, who we'll talk a lot about here in a few minutes. If you're interested in hearing more stories about women in philanthropy, both as fundraisers and donors, check out our new Women in Philanthropy podcast, hosted by Sarah and Tara. New episodes will be posted monthly. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Yeah. So I know a couple years ago, you went through a pretty intensive weight loss program, right? I did. Yeah. So did you just wake up one day and the weight was gone? No, I put together a plan and then I executed that plan and I had people in place to keep me accountable. Yeah. And so I also know that you just recently successfully completed a $25 million plus capital campaign, right? We did, yes. Yeah, same thing. You just woke up and the money was there? No, not exactly. We, uh, we did something very similar. We put together a plan, executed the plan, and we had a team around us that helped keep us accountable to that plan. And it just so happened to be it was Petrus. Yeah. So Petrus loved working with you on that project. And we work with organizations all over the place. Catholic parishes, nonprofits, campus ministries, high schools, middle schools. And that's what we do is we help to create a plan, execute on that plan, and then keep everybody accountable moving in the right direction. So if you're listening and your organization needs to do a capital campaign, build a new building, add staff, start an endowment, Go to PetrusDevelopment.com slash campaign to learn more about working with us. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. So another thing that they find is a narrow passageway between two of these pagan mausoleums. And what initially is an insignificant marble grave was uncovered and relocated. And underneath the ground panel was a hole leading to a tiny burial vault. Inside these walls offered beautiful Christian mosaics. It showed Jonah swallowed by the whale. It showed a fisherman snagging a catch on the line. It showed the good shepherd with a sheep on his shoulders. And on the ceiling is a depiction of Christ driving the chariot and the rising sun, serving as a daily reminder of the resurrection. So, Even though most of what they're finding is pagan, they're finding kind of these little bits and clues of Christian writings, which, again, remember how I talked about earlier, being a Christian when most of these tombs were being made was criminal. And so many of these inscriptions, many of these drawings were kind of done in secret. And if the Romans had found out many of them, they probably would have destroyed them and whoever created them probably would have been killed or tortured. You know, what blows my mind about this is... Peter's Basilica is built on top of this, this huge necropolis and beautiful necropolis. And nobody had a clue that it was down there. I mean, that just blows my mind. Yeah. And what blows my mind is that these are symbols drawn, what, 1800 years ago, probably? 
mm-hmm. and they're pretty recognizable as Christian symbols even to us today. Yeah. And so I know where you're leading us because you said this was between 1940 and 1945, all this excavation and mm-hmm. what they found. Yep. But we all know what kind of happened at the end of this time frame. Did World War II affect any of this? Yeah, so even though they were intent on doing this, Strake is funding it, Pius is committed to this, you've got the three amigos who are kind of leading the charge, a real enlightening story about how they're getting the money is, remember, I don't know if I told you this, but Father Walter Carroll was born in Pittsburgh, okay? So he's an American, and George Strake is in Texas. In order to get the money from Strake in Texas to the Vatican, they actually opened a bank account in Pittsburgh just kind of a totally anonymous, nondescript bank account. And George Strake would just make deposits to it as often as he needed it. So Father Carroll would actually make the withdrawals from that Pittsburgh bank, take them to the Vatican, and then use that money to pay for the excavation. So it's not like today where Strake could just Venmo Pope Pius, right? Or, you know, there wasn't online giving back in the 1930s and 1940s. It required a little bit of finesse and secrecy just to be able to fund an operation like this. I'm guessing he couldn't hop on an airplane either and fly there to get it. So you're talking about during World War II, right? So that's the other point that I want to make, though, is that even though they're all focused on this project, there's a war going on. And there's a lot of other things that are keeping the attention of the Vatican leaders and everybody else involved. So we're going to make a little deviation from the story of the search for St. Peter's Bones and tell you about some of these other projects that the three amigos, who we already know Father Walter Carroll. We also have Father Joseph McGuff, who the two of them are really two of the only Americans that are serving in the Vatican this time. Father McGuff was from New York, and Father Carroll is from Pittsburgh. And then the third of the three amigos is Monsignor Giovanni Montini. You may recognize that name. He ultimately becomes Pope Paul VI. But at this time, the three of them are really kind of the... They take on a lot of projects of the Pope and the Vatican that need to be done. And so we're going to hear from John O'Neill about some of those projects that they're working on. A woman sent us a picture. And when you see the picture, it looks like it's a picture, I'll say 10 or 12 priests. They're all in cassocks. They've all got uh, rosaries hanging down and the black hats. And they're just, cla- I mean, you would say this is a group of uh, priests, right? And she said, you know, uh, see this picture? This is my grandfather, and none of these guys are priests. They're all uh, Jewish doctors and interns, and they were all hidden at the North American College. And if Strike hadn't given the money at the North American College, why wouldn't be here? So we all know that the Jews are being persecuted, right? Hitler and the Nazis are really persecuting any minority group, but the, the Jews in particular. So over the course of the World War II, the Vatican— even though they had this arrangement with the Nazis, this Reichskonkordat, which basically said that the Vatican wouldn't condemn the Nazis if the Nazis wouldn't destroy the Vatican. I mean, that's really kind of the the exchange that they made. But even though they got a lot of grief for that from the Americans and from the public for not the Catholic Church not standing up and publicly for taking a stance against the Nazis— in a way, it allowed them to do some things like what John O'Neill was talking about. So over the course of World War II, the Vatican was actually responsible for saving the lives of over 850,000 Italian Jews. Wow. Yeah, more than any other state or country involved anywhere. 
So these projects, like what John O'Neill was talking about, this Vatican rescue project, was done all in secret. And a Jewish newspaper later after the war actually described it as one of the greatest manifestations of humanitarianism in the 20th century. So think like the U.S., the Underground Railroad, how they kind of had these points set up throughout America and in Canada to get runaway slaves away and to safety. It was very similar. They were, the Vatican was responsible for saving the lives of over 850,000 Italian Jews. And they used programs like what he was talking about, the North American College, where they had the Jews dressed up like priests. They also had this Casa San Giovanni, which Strake purchased for the Vatican because of his relationship with Montini and Carroll. He purchased this area and it served as an escape route for Jews and downed Allied pilots. So what this was is this was kind of this vast farmland and they had sheep and they had animals and they had shepherds on there. And so what they actually would do is they would take the Jews or the allied, downed allied pilots and they would sort of funnel them through Casa San Giovanni and dress them up as shepherds. It's kind of remarkable. And then the other thing, going back to our project, is they actually use the necropolis as a, a hiding place for Jews and for allied pilots during World War II because of this agreement that they had the Nazis never really entered the Vatican. And so it was almost like if they could get these persecuted people or these people under attack into the Vatican, they could hide them in the necropolis and then they could sort of funnel them out through the North American college, dressed as priests, through Casa San Giovanni, just as shepherds. I mean, the whole thing is kind of amazing. And it's crazy how all of these people that we're talking about had a role in this and it's all happening at the same time that World War II is going on, and they're trying to dig for St. Peter's bones. One other thing that I'll talk about is the election of 1948. So in 1943, Eisenhower officially announces the surrender of Mussolini and the Italians. So they're kind of out of the war after 1943. But the communists see Italy as a place where they can establish a foothold in Europe so remember, you had these fascists who, you know, Italy was was run by the fascists. So the the communists felt like maybe this is a way for us to get in to the government and to really have the people of Italy embrace communism. So in 1948, they are electing the first parliament of the Italian Republic. The communists had just taken over in Czechoslovakia in 1948. And so it almost became, you know, you talk about the Cold War, how you have the, the U.S. and the Soviets kind of using these other countries to fight a war. This was like pre-Cold War, but this is trying to stop communism in Italy. And a couple of things that the Catholic Church was involved with is in 1946, 1948, they started what's called the Italian Parish Church Project. And Strake is actually a funder of this as well. I'm telling you, this guy puts money into everything. When he wrote a blank check, he really wrote a blank check, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Over the course of those two years, they built 38 family-oriented Catholic churches in Rome and throughout Italy, really to counteract the communists. The linchpin of this was San Filippo Neri in Garbatello, which is a neighborhood in in Rome, but there's this phrase, it's kind of like a bellwether county, you know, it, as Garbatello goes, so goes Italy. They really felt like Garbatello was representative of the rest of the country. And so San Felipe Neri is an example of this idea of if people have somewhere to go and build community that's not 
sponsored by the state, which you know previous to this was fascist, and now they're trying to create communists, then maybe they will resist and sort of embrace this idea of we need to watch out for each other and we need to protect each other and we need to come together as a community and fight off the communists and fight off, you know, other future fascists. And so in 1948, they're victorious. They win by a landslide, actually. But it was some of these projects that were funded by Strake, that were presented by the church, that were really kind of pivotal in the rest of the history. Because you you can imagine the communists, they have Czechoslovakia, but they're trying to get into Italy. If the Italian government had gone communist, that would have been like a major foothold into the rest of Europe and would have put a lot of pressure on England and France and Germany, Switzerland, all of these places that were able to remain democratic in nature and resist the communists and kind of keep the communists kind of restricted to the Soviet Union and the countries around there. Like a big wall. Yeah, exactly. So these are amazing humanitarian projects, but we're doing a podcast, of course, about finding Peter's bones. We haven't found them yet. When do they go back and start the search again? Great question. And they never really stopped the search. They just had these other things that they were doing in addition to them. Remember when I said they were doing a, a really hard job poorly? Well, that hard job continued, but there were some wins. And a couple of these wins are in 1942, Koss... You know, remember him, Monsignor Ludwig Koss, he's in charge of the project. Well, he was kind of cut out by Ferua. There was a lot of going back and forth there, but he would go in and he would kind of pick up some of the things that he felt were important. And one of these things he picked up was this kind of pile of bones underneath this wall with a bunch of inscriptions, put it into a box and saved it for later. But the big win of the 1940s is that in 1950, Father Ferua actually presents Pope Pius XII with the announcement that they found St. Peter's bones. They found them in this tomb and in this mausoleum, not exactly where they thought they were going to be, but close by. And everybody was convinced that these are the bones of St. Peter. And so in 1950, Pope Pius XII announces that they found St. Peter's bones. So if this was a secret project, why did he kind of rush to announce? Yeah, so he wasn't planning to. A member of the Italian media actually found out somehow that this whole project is going on and before kind of blowing the lid on it all, gave them the opportunity to come clean about it. And so in 1950, they said, okay, yeah, we found the bones. We were successful. We've been doing this all in secret. You didn't know it. And so they announced it. And so in 1951, Strake comes to Rome with his family, and he's not really honored because he didn't want that, but he was part of the celebration of finding St. Peter's bones. We also, around the same time in 1950, we lost Father Walter Carroll. The dude was a boss, and he could not ever slow down. So all the work that he was doing, right, like the saving the Jews, being part of the parish project, being part of this excavation, traveling from America to Italy. Carol actually was responsible for taking secret messages back and forth between Pope Pius XII and the U.S. government and the president. And all of this really did take a toll on him. He kept getting sick. They kept telling him, you need to stop. He wouldn't. And so in 1950, he did unfortunately pass away. And then a couple years later, we lose somebody else. In 1952, Koss dies and Pius orders that he's also buried in the Acropolis, which he's one of the only non-popes that's buried in the Acropolis, which is actually pretty cool. 
Around 1952, though, we have somebody else come onto the scene. So Farua is really expecting that he's going to be appointed head of the excavation when Koss dies. He's the one that's been doing all the work. He's the one that's been in charge. He's the one that's, heck, found St. Peter's Bones. But that's not what happens. Somebody else comes onto the scene, and in that moment that they do, this person tells Pope Pius, um, you know those bones that you have that you announced a couple of years ago that were the bones of St. Peter? I think you got the wrong guy. What? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. That is crazy. So if they found the wrong guy, what do they do next? I mean, what what's next in this? Uh, that's where the story gets really interesting. But you're going to have to come back next episode to find out. Can't wait. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions. Graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. All of our Holy Donors were connected to the organizations they support through great development officers. Do you want to learn to raise more money for your organization? Go to PetrusDevelopment.com slash education to learn about our free Petrus Academy offerings every month. See you there. And we're live. Ready? So, Andrew. Yo. Why can a T-Rex not tie his shoes because his arms aren't long enough because he's extinct <laughs> Jeez. because <laughs> he's dead dummy <laughs> f f f s s t t t sh- all right guys i'm ready <laughs> thanks andrew